Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. And with Patreon there's a bunch of different tiers you can do to all of your likes content with all sorts of different perks. So check that out if uh, you're interested. And with that I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be back and we've got a pretty packed show so I'm not going to waste too much time on the intro. But we're going to start off by talking about an update from Rhythm Pharmaceuticals and their drug Cetmelanotide. We're then going to move into updates from Hepion Pharmaceuticals. And then the main story for today is a company called Anavex Life Sciences. And they have some assets in the neuroscience space that I think are very interesting. And that's going to be sort of along the lines of what we've talked about in regards to Axivant gene therapies, or now SIO. So we're going to get into all of that stuff, and it's going to be a pretty good show. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I appreciate all of the support, the subscriber numbers and everything like that. It's been really great. So thanks everybody for that. And hope you're all having a great Thanksgiving. This is uh, Thanksgiving weekend in uh, the USA. So hope everybody's being safe and enjoying the time with their friends or family or whatever you like to do. So with that, let's just get right into it. And the first company I want to talk about is one called Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol RYTM. And they announced on November 27th, which is just this past Friday, that they got FDA approval for Imsivri for chronic weight management in patients with obesity due to POMC, PCSK1, or leptin R deficiency. And these are in patients age 6 or older. And now, what I had set out in my original video, which I did two weeks ago, is that this was largely priced in and largely expected. And that was due to the very impactful data that they showed in phase 3 for patients that had deficiencies in these genes. Now, what I didn't realize is the pricing scheme that the company was really seeking. And for that reason, I think that's why the stock moved so much in this news. And by the way, congratulations to all of the longs who had a position in the company. The stock moved up 21% on the news, um, which is much higher than I expected. And the reason for that is that my pricing model, I had put in a price of around $15,000 per patient per year. And what we heard in this call that the company did is that they're pricing the drug at $330 per milligram. And for an adult dose is 3 milligrams per day, and that's an estimate of around $360,000 per patient per year. Now the dose is going to be smaller for younger patients, so what the company's estimated is that for the combined amount of revenue they can expect, it's going to be between $290,000 and $300,000 per patient per year. And this is a, an increase compared to my model, an increase of around 20 times. So I was totally off on the pricing, and this is why it's so important that getting the patient population and the pricing right are such important factors when it comes to coming up with a model. Now, one of the things that I was kind of mulling over in my previous video, and check that out, I go through way more details on rhythm, is whether or not they're going to treat this as kind of an obesity drug, in which case there's a ton of competition, and it's going to be tough for Rhythm to compete if they're going to price the drug really high. Now, what Rhythm is arguing is that this is in fact a rare disease drug, specifically for patients with these very rare mutations that lead to obesity issues. So, when you do it that way, it's a lot easier to garner that price, and we've talked about this, I've talked about this in previous videos, uh, one with WX Capital in regards to Crystal Biotech, so check that out. But basically what the company is doing 
is uh, they're going to try to garner this price in a rare disease population, which is a subset of obesity patients. And it makes sense. I mean, why not try at this price and, and see how they do in the market? And it's going to take a ton of education, a ton of uh, working with different advocacy groups who specifically work in, in patients that have these POMC, PCSK1, or leptin R deficiencies. But given that pricing model, the company's valued significantly higher than I had it at, and it makes sense if they're able to penetrate that population. And that's really the question. Related to that discussion is the discussion surrounding reimbursement from payers. And there was a question in the Q&A section of the talk that they gave, and what the CMO, COO, I forget who it was, but they said that they've had generally positive discussions with payers who would support covering the drug for patients that have health insurance. So they were very broad in terms of their answer, but they're generally saying that they're having positive discussions. And if they can get reimbursement from payers, the pricing issue here would largely be overcome. And if that's the case, then it seems like Rhythm might actually be able to penetrate the market to a high degree. So that remains kind of the question when it comes to this company. The other things to look out for for this company are the readouts in Alstrom as well as Bardet Beetle Syndrome. And that has a patient population as well that the company will be able to penetrate if they see success here. The other big, big catalyst that I see is this basket of genetic disorders around it, surrounding obesity. And the reason for this is that the patient population is significantly higher than the homozygotes in which the current indication only supports. So if they're able to see an improvement in outcomes with regards to heterozygous, POMC, leptin R deficient patients, that could really, really open up the market and make this company valued significantly higher. So depending on how that data shakes out, it could be a big mover for the stock. The company's launching Imsivri in Q1 of 2021. So Depending on how that goes, if you're playing that angle, it's really going to be the adoption of the drug. But with the clinical readouts coming out, I think it is interesting to keep an eye on them. So I'm not going to take a position. Congratulations to all the longs. It was a nice move in the, in the stock. And if you want to play it, that's kind of how I would look at it moving forward. But for me, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. The next company I want to touch on is one called Hepion Pharmaceuticals. And they are commercializing a NASH drug that specifically targets fibrosis, according to them. And what we heard is that the Data Safety Monitoring Board recommends continuation of the Phase 2A Ambition clinical trial for treatment in advanced NASH. And what the company is doing is first looking at the 75 milligram dose, and then they're going to increase that to uh, 225 milligrams, which I think is probably going to be more efficacious. And so what the press release said is that there were no safety or tolerability issues with 75 milligrams, and to me that was kind of expected. It's like on the lower dose end. The DSMB recommended the ambition study continue with 225 milligrams for the CRV431 dose cohort. And that's the name of the drug, CRV431. They also mentioned that there were clinically significant reductions observed in the liver safety parameters, ALT and AST. And for those who aren't aware of this, ALT and AST are good markers for liver damage, and generally there's kind of a baseline increase in NASH patients or any patient that has liver disease, but what they're mentioning here is kind of like a little hint that the 75 milligram dose is able to reduce these kind of damage markers associated with the liver. Now, just because there's a reduction in ALT and AST, I don't think that necessarily means there's an improvement in fibrosis, and at the 75 milligram dose, I think it's kind of a stretch right now. So they're kind of 
trying to hint that there is efficacy here, but I think we really need to be patient and see the actual fibrosis readouts from this trial before we get too excited. And also, I'm not super convinced that the 75 milligram dose is going to have a big effect. I think if there's an effect, it'll likely be seen at the 225 milligram dose. But given that, I think what I mentioned in my Hepion video after I did the interview with the CEO, and check out those previous videos, but what I mentioned was that I was going to wait to see the data from the multiple ascending dose trial, and that should be coming soon, and take a position then in anticipation of the readouts for the actual efficacy for their phase 2A ambition trial, which is going to actually look at these different doses of CRV431 and its impact on fibrosis in NASH. The other thing that we heard is that Hepion did another public offering of its common stock, 20 million shares at $1.50 per share for an estimated profits of $30 million. Now, companies need to do this in order to raise funds so that they can continue their clinical trials and, and fund their operations. And what this means now is that their total outstanding shares are around 29 million, I believe, giving them a market cap of around $45 million. For me though, in the Nash space, this is still a very attractive company to invest in if there's a chance that the ambition trial is gonna show efficacy. So like I said, I'm sticking to my guns and I am gonna take a position in the company after we see that multiple ascending dose trial data and then kind of go from there. So that's Hepion, just wanted to touch on them given that we saw a little bit of news. But with that, let's move on to the main story for today and that is a company called Anavex Life Sciences, ticker symbol AVXL. And they traded on the 27th of November at $5.37 a share, giving them a market cap of $314 million. Their Q3 2020 loss was $6.5 million, and their Q3 2020 current assets sit at $31.6 million, with a Q3 2020 current liabilities of $7 million. So if we look at kind of their cash runway, I would give it until mid-2021, but I wouldn't put it past the company to raise in early 2021. So we need to keep that in mind when we're going to take a position so that we can get out of the position in order to avoid dilution in the stock when the company eventually needs to raise money to fund their operations. Now, the company itself is focusing on neurodegenerative diseases, and the main ones are Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. They're also looking at a rare disease called Rett syndrome. And they have a, a few molecules in their pipeline. The main one of them that I'm going to talk about today is called Blarcamazine. And this is also known as Anavex 273. And what this molecule is, is an agonist of the Sigma-1 receptor as well as muscarinic receptors. So I'm going to touch on those very briefly. I also mentioned here Anavex 371, and they're looking at this in frontotemporal dementia as well as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But really the value today is on the potential of blarcamazine in these different diseases. So we're going to focus on that and I'm going to get into all the details. To talk briefly about neurodegenerative diseases, and I've done this over and over again, so please check out my previous videos on Axivant gene therapies. Uh, I've looked at other types of companies involved in the space. Generally, the issue with these diseases is that the mechanisms are not well characterized and it's very difficult to bring drugs onto the market. So I would say in general, when you're going into investing in a neurodegenerative disease company, you need to have very low expectations because it's just super difficult to bring these drugs to market. And I think the reason for that is we don't fully understand what's going on with the diseases. There's a lot of theories, but when it comes to actually commercializing a drug, the FDA needs to see clinical outcome benefits. And if you're not able to do that, then you're not going to get approval. The other thing is that symptoms are often what's treated. And when you're just looking at symptoms and not treating the underlying condition, 
that isn't always the best way to go about it. And some companies have had a lot of success here. Obviously, Aricept in Alzheimer's disease has been a huge drug for Pfizer. But again, it's just difficult to do. Something else to consider, though, is that the FDA is obviously very willing to approve drugs, and we can see this from the Biogen Advisory Committee documents that were released in reference to aducanumab, but what we saw also is that the Advisory Committee was not convinced, so they voted overwhelmingly against the approval of aducanumab, and that's because the efficacy just wasn't there. So what we really need to see in a drug is that there's compelling efficacy with minimal side effects, and if one can be brought to the FDA with a nice profile through and through, they are very willing to approve it. Now, one of the big reasons why companies want to pursue neurodegenerative diseases is because it's a huge patient population. I have the numbers listed here. For Alzheimer's disease in the USA, there's around 5.7 million patients. Parkinson's disease is 1 million patients. If we look towards these more rare disease, neurodegenerative diseases like Rett syndrome, there's only 11,000, and frontotemporal dementia, around 30,000. But as we saw with the Rhythm Pharmaceutical story, you can garner a significantly higher price for the drug in these rare diseases. So there is an attractive opportunity there as well. So what Anavex is doing to target these diseases is looking at the Sigma-1 receptor as well as muscarinic receptors using their drug Anavex-273 or Blarcamazine. So just to start off by talking about the Sigma receptor 1, this is a receptor that's broadly expressed in tissues, but it does have high expression in the CNS. It's expressed at the endoplasmic reticulum, if you remember your cell biology, and it's a transmembrane protein. And now, something that I thought was pretty interesting about this receptor is that it is the receptor of a number of different ligands, and that could be exogenous ones as well as endogenous ones. And just the list of the different drugs that can target this receptor are opioids, steroids, cocaine, denepazil, dextromethorphan, as well as a number of different antidepressants. And I list a few here. Uh, Celexa, Luvox. So to me, it seems like the pathway is validated just by the fact that all of these different molecules can have effects on the brain, and we know that. It's been well characterized that these different drugs can have outcomes. So for that reason, I think it's enticing to target this therapeutically because it's been used in various different ways to improve outcomes or even used in the abuse setting. And to me, that just means that there is a valid pathway targeting this receptor. Now, these drugs don't exclusively target the Sigma-1 receptor. And for that reason, it's tough to know whether the Sigma receptor 1 is the main target that has these effects. But I still think it's enticing. The other thing that we know is that this receptor has a multifunctional effect in the brain. And I just list a few here, but what has been seen is that targeting the Sigma receptor 1 has led to reduced excitotoxicity. And this is a condition where too many free radicals are in the brain and this can cause damage. And apparently the Sigma receptor 1 can improve that outcome. Something else that it does is mediate calcium signaling. And this is important with regards to functionality and contractility in muscles, but also there's an important function in the brain. And I'm not gonna get into too many details and I write here endo to mito. And I list that because the communication between the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria is a very important network, and there is evidence to suggest that targeting the sigma receptor 1 is important in that way. The other thing that this protein is able to do is act as a chaperone. And what this means, if you remember your biochemistry courses, is that it's important in protein folding. And one thing that we know in Alzheimer's disease is that protein misfolding is a real characteristic. 
Now, whether that has anything to do with the actual pathogenesis of the disease or it's more of an effect of the disease, we don't really know. But the fact that the sigma receptor 1 is involved as a chaperone is, uh, is interesting to me. So that's the sigma receptor 1. The second type of receptors I want to talk about are muscarinic receptors. And they are a big family of receptors known as G-protein coupled receptors expressed on the membrane surface of neurons. There's multiple subtypes with different activity, um, and they're named M1 through M5. Each of them has an own unique characteristic. Acetylcholine is the major agonist, but a lot of different other ones exist. And I'm not going to get into too many details here, but basically these receptors have been implicated in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, as well as other diseases. The next thing I want to talk about are the actual diseases and see the kind of data that Anavex has generated up to date and seeing whether or not, you know, there is a play here from an investment standpoint. So the first disease I want to talk about is Rett syndrome. And the reason for this is because this is the most important catalyst that I see coming up in the short term. And now Rett syndrome is a rare disease. There aren't many patients in the USA, but it does fall underneath that threshold to be considered an orphan disease or a rare disease. And what it is, it's a non-inherited genetic postnatal disorder caused by mutations in the MECP2 gene. And it's a neurodevelopmental disease in girls with both movement impairment and cognitive impairment. And this impairment includes the difficulty to speak, to walk, to eat, and even breathe easily. And it's also associated with dysfunctionally high levels of brain glutamate. And we're going to talk about this in the data because this is a real marker to see whether or not a drug that you have actually has some kind of outcome. And that's what they're looking at here. Unfortunately, as well, there's no real cure for this disease, and it really surrounds managing the symptoms. So these patients are on a variety of different medications, GI meds, scoliosis meds, SSRIs, antipsychotics, and as well as many more. And I, I emphasize the SSRIs and the antipsychotics just to suggest that there are significant issues in the brain, and a lot of it has to do, theoretically, with this high brain glutamate. So if brain glutamate can be improved or lowered in these patients, we could see a big improvement in the cognition aspect of this disease. So moving on to the actual trial that Anavex has done in Rett syndrome, what we've seen in their phase two part A, which is a study that's focused exclusively on safety tolerability, PK, as well as efficacy, is that patients have seen a significant improvement using this Rett syndrome behavior questionnaire in issues surrounding hand behaviors, breathing problems, as well as this walking during the night or sleep issues associated with the disease. And if you do a total score, like summing all of these up, we see there's around a 30% improvement on patients that were taking blarcamazine. What they also showed too is a glutamate readout. So they measured glutamate in patients on baseline as well as at seven weeks after. And what we see here is that glutamate decreases by 40%. So theoretically, what we're hoping is that what's going on here is that blarcamazine is able to lower glutamate somehow, and the mechanism here is not clear. But through the reduction of glutamate, we're seeing a lot of improvements in the cognitive issues associated with these patients. So it's very encouraging early data. And just to go deeper into the data, this is only an N of 6, so only a very, very small patient population. They're on a five milligram oral liquid formulation once daily. And then another thing I wanted to bring up here is that the company used non-parametric tests here. And not to get too bogged down in the statistical analysis, but there's two types in general of statistical testing you can do, parametric and non-parametric. 
the classical ones that we always tend to see when it comes to scientific data are parametric tests and there's a lot of assumptions that go along with when you use one test and when you use another one parametric tests assume that the data follows a normal distribution and generally it's more powerful in the sense that if there is an effect using a parametric test is more likely to find that effect compared to a non-parametric test. Now on the other hand when you have a very low n number sometimes it makes more sense to use non-parametric tests even though they're not statistically as powerful so I don't want to call it the company too much here but one thing that they did are non-parametric tests in this patient population and even with those non-parametric tests the p-value was just barely under 0.05 so to me it doesn't put a ton of stock into this data necessarily it just means that the likelihood of positive data in a future trial should not be based on this pretty much at all it's encouraging but I'd say it has much less weight than your typical early phase 2 trial having said that there are some upcoming readouts that we should be excited about so the company is looking at patients, adult patients in Rett, with Rett syndrome, as well as pediatric patients with Rett syndrome. The one that we should be looking forward to upcoming soon is the Avatar study, and this is in adults, 18 years or older. It's a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study. It's basically the part two of this phase two, looking at 30 patients. And it's a seven-week study with a potential 12-week open-label extension. And what we can expect is this data to come out in Q4 of 2020, the other study they're looking at is with pediatric patients. This is called the Excellence Study, and it's also double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled. They're looking at kids age 5 to 18 years old, and this is a Phase 2-3 trial, looking at 70 patients, so it's potentially registrational, but the data that we're going to expect is not going to come out until the second half of 2021. So, just to put this in your minds, Q4 2021, this trial here, the study in adults, 30 patients is going to be coming out in Q4. I think this could be a big mover for the stock, and I'm going to get into that a little bit later, but this is the one to focus on for now. Moving on to Alzheimer's disease. And the data that the company showed for this was released quite a while ago. They did publish a follow-on study based on the open label, the extension trial that they did. And it was a phase two study looking at the safety, tolerability, and efficacy of Anavex 273 in Alzheimer's disease patients. 32 patients were looked at and they did multiple different dose schemes. It seems like for this drug there needs to be a titration period and then the patient can be on the drug. And I imagine this is due to side effects, but generally the drug is well tolerated. So I write here that the original data was released in 2016 and there were positive effects on safety and cognition. But then the extension study was published showing up to 148 weeks of treatment in these patients. Just to show the data quickly. They looked at a number of different cognition endpoints, the MMSE, as well as the ADCS, ADL. These are activities of daily living, and they can measure these and compare placebo to treatment. Or in this case, what they did is they looked at the low concentration and the high concentration of patients. What we see here is that the patients with the low mean concentration of Anavex 273, their disease gets worse between week 0 and week 148 whereas the treatment group actually is very plateaued, so they kind of stay the same where they are, and that's pretty good if we compare that to, say, aducanumab or any other kind of drug that we've seen in Alzheimer's trials. We see the same thing for the ADCS, ADL, the low mean concentration of Anavex 273 gets much worse over time, whereas the treatment group, which has the high amount of Anavex 273, 
is basically no change at all. So that's the data that we see. Now when I looked at the clinicaltrials.gov page, it says that they're collecting data up to 208 weeks, and the data in the study that we saw is only 148 weeks. So it's likely that we could see an update where they give the full data set, and that's up to 208 weeks. Thing is though, I don't expect to see a big change from the data that we see here to when it's done all the way to 208 weeks. So that's just my impression, but the estimated completion date is November of 2020. So there is a chance we could see an update in Alzheimer's disease, even though it's not going to be that big phase three trial that always moves neurodegenerative disease companies up or down so much. So here's the next trial, and this is the one that is going to be another huge mover for the stock, even though we're not going to get a readout until later next year. But it's a phase 2B3 study, and it's a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, 48-week safety and efficacy trial of Anivex 273 for the treatment of early Alzheimer's disease. These are in patients 60 years or older. They're looking at 450 patients, and it's a daily dose. They're doing two doses, medium and high, for Anivex 273. And the primary outcomes are the ADAS-COG or ADCS-ADL. And these are just two other ways of measuring the cognitive or daily living effects of Alzheimer's disease. And they're going to see whether or not Anivex 273 does have an improvement compared to control. Now, unfortunately, the readout for this isn't going to be until Q4 of 2021. So I would not buy the company today for a readout then. It's something we could look at when we get closer to the end of next year. Now, let's move on to Parkinson's disease. And the reason why I want to touch on this is, you know, obviously it's an important indication, but they just released data at the CTAD conference in November of 2020. So this is relatively recently that they announced this data, and the movement in the stock was kind of muted. It popped up quite a bit, but now the stock is basically trading right back where it was before they announced this data. What the study was, was a phase two trial to assess the safety, tolerability, and efficacy of Anivex 273 in Parkinson's disease patients. There was an N of 132 patients. They did a titration phase, and then the patients either had 50 milligrams or 30 milligrams, and this is between week eight and week 14. And that's gonna be important when we actually look at the data. To first touch on the safety and some of the other things the company was interested in, they were overall concerned about sleep with these drugs, and this sometimes can happen with different cognitive drugs, so the company wanted to take a concerted effort to look at this. And overall, there were no negative effects on sleep. As well, when it came to adverse events, they read here that there were no treatment emergent adverse events of clinical relevance in the Anivex 273 cohort. Subjects with at least one TEAE leading to steady discontinuation in the maintenance phase were 4.9% in the active cohort versus 4.7% in the placebo, which is very good. The majority of the TEAEs were observed during the up titration phase, which were dizziness, and this is 10.2% versus 2.3, but apparently this was just light. And typical adverse events seen with already marketed CNS drugs were not really observant. So overall, the safety is good, and that's important. To get to the actual efficacy data, what they showed us, and this is just top-line data, so they just show kind of the most important findings, I would say. They focused on quality of episodic memory. And I'm just blowing this up here on the screen. But what they're showing us is at week 8 and week 14. And so this is during the finishing of the titration phase all the way to the end of the maintenance phase. And they did either the 50 milligram or 30 milligram. But the first thing that pops out to me here is that they merged the two groups. And immediately what that kind of makes me question is whether or not there was a dose response with this drug. 
and if either of them would be significantly different if they were split apart. So what I've seen in certain scientific research is that studies will merge data together in order to increase the power kind of artificially. Now I don't know if that's what's going on here, but it does make me wonder. So just that's kind of an aside, but if we look at the data itself, it is kind of impressive. So week eight, we see that the placebo versus the Anovex 273, and what this is is the percent of patients in the top interval in terms of the quality of episodic memory. So this is a test just to evaluate memory of these patients, and this is really an issue when it comes to the dementia portion of Parkinson's disease. So what happens sometimes is Parkinson's disease will eventually lead to this dementia problem, and it can be very negative for patients. So they specifically looked at this episodic memory. And what we see here is that the Anovex group has 63% of patients that are in the top interval of quality of episodic memory compared to 37% in the placebo group. And they saw this both at the finish of the up titration phase as well as the maintenance dose phase. So that's very positive. And then they also parsed out patients that were wild type for the Sigma-1 receptor. And they did this to kind of validate their model. And just to explain that a little bit more, in some Parkinson's disease patients, they'll have a genetic component to Parkinson's disease. And what the company wanted to do is say, in wild type versions of Sigma-1 receptor patients, is there more of an effect of Anovex 273? And what this would mean is that the drug is more likely to be working through this mechanism if patients that have the wild type version of the Sigma-1 receptor are responding better to the drug. And that is, in fact, what we see here. Compared to the totality of the group, we see 66% in that top interval. But if we just bring out the Sigma-1 R wild types, that moves up to 74%. So in a way, and this is just preliminary data, really, they're saying that patients that are wild type for the Sigma-1 receptor are more responsive to Anovex 273, kind of validating the mechanism that this works through the Sigma-1 receptor. So to expand on this data, they kind of compared it, and I'm just gonna blow up the other figure that they showed, and I'm putting that here. So if they do a comparison of, or a difference of the end of treatment to baseline, we see here that the treatment group had a negative 2.74 when it came to the difference in the quality of episodic memory compared to the placebo that was negative 19.88. So overall, it seems like pretty good data to start with. Other things that they looked at are choice reaction time as well as digital vigilance reaction time. And these are just other tests to assess the ability of Parkinson's patients to make decisions as well as their digital vigilance. And what we see here is that there's a significant improvement in the treatment group compared to placebo in both of these two different metrics. So where we're at though, is that the company still has to do a complete data analysis, and this includes the MDS-UPDRS, and this is what we saw with the Axivant trial. So especially the motor one, um, I think it's probably one of the most important. We need to see a full readout on the actual other metrics that are associated with Parkinson's disease, and I think that's gonna be more impactful in terms of moving the stock. And the other thing they're looking at is actigraphy, and this is a general readout of human rest and activity behavior over the span of 24 hours. So I think this is gonna be less biased because it's not really a survey like the other ones are, where they're really just gonna look at the level of activity at baseline, at treatment, comparing placebo to treatment. And that data is gonna be very impactful. 
They also say they're doing DNA and RNA sequencing, which I think is, is interesting, but really that MDS UPDRS data as well as the actigraphy, I think it's going to be a big mover for the stock. And they haven't told us when they're going to provide this data. It's likely going to come in a conference or maybe at some earnings report. So I'm going to be keeping an eye out on that for sure. They also mentioned that the data is going to be submitted to the FDA to seek regulatory guidance on a registrational trial. So this was only a phase two trial and they're going to have to do another phase three or a registrational file before they can file an NDA and eventually be able to market the drug to patients. So overall, that's where we're at with the company. Now, when it comes to pricing, I wanted to touch on this because it's so important. So I've shown this chart before, and this is a general chart looking at the different sales figures for different CNS drugs. We have Aricept, uh, Namita, some of these other ones I'm not super familiar with, but the major ones for Alzheimer's are Aricept and Namita, or Mamantine. And we see here that at their peak, Aricept was able to garner around $3.5 billion in sales, whereas Namita, I think in 2011, was around $2 billion. So very big drugs. And we can use this to kind of anticipate the amount of revenue we could gain if these drugs were approved from Anivex. So here's my model. For Rett syndrome, which is a rare disease, if we estimate that 11,000 patients at a pricing of, say, $100,000 per year, and if we compare this to, say, the Rhythm drug, this is three times less. So this could be an underrepresentation of how much the company could garner if they're able to get every patient treated. But this would give a value of the company of $1.1 billion. For Alzheimer's disease, I based it off of the max revenue of Aricept. And in today's dollars, that could be a lot different. So this could also be kind of an underrepresentation of what the, the revenue could be. But because the Alzheimer's disease readout isn't until Q4 of 2021, I don't think we should put too much stock into this. The value of Parkinson's, on the other hand, I based it off of the Carbidopa prices, and this is an on-brand, or it was an on-brand molecule to treat Parkinson's disease. And this was priced at $10,000 per year, so if we assume max penetration of 1 million patients, that's around $10 billion. So overall, though, I think the most important readouts that are upcoming are the Rett syndrome as well as the update in the Parkinson's disease data set. And that's to include those things that I mentioned before, the different readouts. So what I'm going to do is take a small position in the company into the Rett syndrome data as well as for the full Parkinson's disease data. And I just have a typo here. But I think, like I mentioned, Rett syndrome, it's a rare disease, and for that reason, they could garner a significantly higher price, as we saw with Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. So I don't see why the same thing couldn't happen for Anivex. The thing is, there isn't as convincing earlier data, in my opinion, when it comes to what we've seen in this presentation, the Phase 2 Part A data. But despite that, because the company's only valued at $300 million right now, I still think the reward to risk ratio is in the favor of going long. So for that reason, I think it's worth taking a position. I also want to see the full Parkinson's disease data. I think if they're able to show very convincing actigraphy data as well as the other one, the stock could really move on that news. After we see that data, I'm going to probably decide to sell in order to avoid a capital raise because I think that's coming and then maybe take another position for the Alzheimer's disease data the huge readout for this company is going to be in Q4 of 2021 for that Alzheimer's disease data because it's a phase 2B3 trial and they're looking at so many patients. And I also have to caveat that neurodegenerative disease companies, CNS companies, they're very, very risky and even more risk than, say, you know, other kind of 
biotechnology companies. So going into this, I don't have very high expectations. And if you're going to take a position, I think you should also be very tempered in your expectations for positive data. And that's what I've got on Anavex. So let me know what you think. Let me know what I'm missing here. Write a comment below and I'd be happy to engage. So for the next weeks, we have more updates coming for some interesting companies. Trillium and TG Therapeutics have some upcoming updates. Um, Trillium and Nash, I think TGTX, the one I'm most excited about is in multiple sclerosis. We have another readout for Actinium at Nash, as well as a readout from SIO Gene Therapies, which used to be Axivant Gene Therapies, and that's going to be another rare disease readout. For BioXL, though, I mentioned that they, I think they delayed some of their readouts. We should see some updates in solid tumor and prostate data, some initial efficacy expected in Q4, but their phase 1B2 for opioid withdrawal as well as agitation in dementia, I believe they're being pushed to Q1 of 2021. But to do a quick portfolio wrap-up, I am at 9% year-to-date, and to give a rundown on the moves I've made, I sold Muradi, and I think I told everybody this last time, but just to make sure that was clear, I did take a position in Orenia. And in terms of what's been really propping up my portfolio, I'd say overall, it's TG Therapeutics and Trillium. Trillium has been on a crazy tear lately, and it's been really awesome to watch. I want to look more into ALX Oncology. There's been a lot of debate on Twitter about, you know, is ALX going to have the better molecule or Trillium? And I think it makes sense to look into both of them and see whether or not they can both exist. And it makes sense that they could, in my opinion, but I really need to do a deeper dive on that. And yeah, when it comes to comparing to other indices, I am beating the Dow Jones, but I'm catching up to the SPX 500. So I'm excited about that. The XBI is still on a crazy tear. It's actually catching up to the NASDAQ 100, which you love to see. And also volatility continues to go down. And I think that's all based on the positive vaccine news that we've been seeing. There are going to be some logistical issues to rolling out the vaccine, but the fact that the news is there, I think, really confirms to investors that there's a light at the end of the tunnel with regards to COVID-19. So that's how I kind of look at it. But with that, I'm going to wrap it up. So I want to thank everybody for all your support. Let me know what you think of the video. Leave a comment below. And if you want to hit the like or subscribe button, that would also be helpful. And if you want to donate, you can also do that using the Patreon link below. So again, thanks, everybody. Appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.